Hey folks, if you've been tuning in over the last couple of months, you've heard all about the GameTime app and how it can save you some serious cash on last-minute tickets to sports, concerts, and all types of shows. It's such a quick and easy app to download and set up. It's a two-tap checkout process, which is basically the equivalent of liking those family holiday photos on Instagram. Tap, tap. You've got your tickets to the next show, sports event, concert, whatever it is that you're looking for. Well... With all of that said, now GameTime is hooking you up for the holidays with a $10 credit. Here's what to do. Download the GameTime app in the Google Play or App Store. Click on the My Ticket section of the app, create an account, then under the billing section, redeem the code THEATHLETIC. That's THEATHLETIC, all one word, for $10 off your first purchase. That's free money, people, in the holidays. Credit's only available for the first thousand people who redeem the code, and it expires at the end of the year, which is December 31st, 2019, so make sure to make those moves quick and score last-minute tickets via GameTime. Hello and welcome to a holiday edition of the Boarding Pass with Ken Weeb and myself, Murata Tesh. This week in Jetsland, we have records set franchise-wide by Blake Wheeler. Uh, we've got a little bit of Christmas hockey talk via Paul Maurice. Uh, Ken's got round-the-horn reaction on the Blake Wheeler record setting. Uh, some family friends in Shinny and Neil Pionk's family life as well. The Holiday Cup being a major tradition to talk about. We'll share that with you soon. Uh, let's get right into it, though. Ken Weeb, how are you today? Happy holidays to you. Tremendous, Murat. Thank you. Happy holidays to you and yours as well. Great Why, time of the year. Thank you, sir. Yeah, uh, well, it's a, it's a time of the year where it's about gift giving and spending <laughs> time with loved ones and all of those sorts of things. And Paul Maurice was telling us a couple of weeks ago now that Christmas time hockey is about lots of chances at both ends. And I, it, it's something that I've wondered about, and i followed up with him a couple of times, this idea that the Winnipeg Jets, if they open it up, can play maybe not the kind of coach-approved uh, hockey, but opened up chances at both ends, high-octane finishing talent, a great goaltender. Um, and we saw that all happen with the 6 nothing shutout uh, just the other day in Minnesota, which was a huge confidence-shifting game for the Winnipeg Jets. What did you make of that? Was that, was that a defense first into a sh- into a, a blowout game? Was that the offense taking it over? And what do you think about Christmas hockey uh, as a concept for the Winnipeg Jets? Yeah, no, I definitely uh, know where you're coming from, Rot. Uh, I don't, I don't know that the. I totally understand the premise, and I, I just don't think that. Uh, I don't think that it is the the modus operandi, or it shouldn't. I'm not. I'm not in favor of the uh, the full turn. I, I do believe the Jets can produce off enough offense uh, with the key on defense. I understand that their forward group is highly skilled and has the uh, explosion factor, like we did see on Saturday against the Minnesota Wild. But uh, I would counter that the the meat and potatoes brand uh, of hockey. Uh, when you when you add in the skill, uh, I think you can still get enough positive results uh, if that's the way the Jets can continue to commit to playing. I mean, I will use the Chicago example for that, where there were enough odd man rushes by Kyle Connor alone to and Grade A chances on those two on ones to probably have won the game on his own stick. But 
the other part of that equation that we can't forget is that, I mean, Chicago went 12 and a half minutes without even re- recording a shot on net to start the second period. So the Jets were sound defensively after giving up that goal in the opening minute. And of course, they gave up a goal in the opening minute of the third, and that kind of sunk them in a lot of ways. But I think there still is a happy medium when it comes to uh, not necessarily just wide open pond hockeying the uh, the level of play or fire wagon, uh, if some might call it that. But I, I mean, it's certainly worth exploring. But I just think that there will be enough nights that a team will run into a hot goalie where uh, the, the fire wagon brand of hockey uh, is not going to be sustainable over the long haul. And we know the game will change coming up very quickly here in January. The games will start to look a little bit different. After the midway point, they look different. Starting in March, they look different. And when you get to April and then the middle of April, uh, I don't know that uh, any team, not even the Jets with all of their you know potent offensive weapons up front, I don't know that that... I understand that is how some people feel uh, on social media and and it is an idea worth exploring. But uh, I, don't, I don't... A, I don't see the Jets changing their game to open up that way. And B, I don't know that it is their best uh you know best bet at success i think paul maurice would agree with you as well to listen to him talk and i I keep going back in my mind uh it was about this time one year ago when winnipeg was rolling teams on the scoreboard uh it was at the time nick ehlers was playing on the top line with mark shifley and blake wheeler and they were just going east west seam passes for days uh racking up the goals and at the end of the season media availability and even before that but when you do the end of the season availability that's kind of like a post-mortem of the year December got pointed to a couple of times as a period when the Winnipeg Jets got away from the style of hockey that they wanted to play so I've started to kind of wonder if maybe for for Paul Maurice and the Jets when they started opening it up and going offense only or offense first uh, it seems to have stuck in their minds and their memories as the beginning of the end in a way, leading into that second half slump. And to hear Paul Maurice talk about um, if we can't be a team that outchances its opposition today, we will be. It sounds to me like he acknowledges that the goaltending is 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 really the the strongest part of this team right now, and there are some scrappy moments in the defensive end. But it also sounds like. This is his vision for the playoff version of the Winnipeg Jets, as if there's something about this style that will serve them better when the games get harder uh, as the year goes by. I mean, Winnipeg's in a playoff spot. The odds are good that they're going to make the playoffs. Uh, It's not a done deal quite yet. What do you make of that in terms of that stylistic change? Because you alluded to it just a second ago. How, How much does this favor or not favor the Jets when the games turn? Yeah, for sure. And Marat, you make a great point there. But I mean, I would also I would also counter that Paul, when it was happening last year in December, Paul Maurice went well out of his way to point out that he didn't think that those seam plays, he was incredibly happy about racking up six goals a night, but he knew that wasn't sustainable. So uh, I understand that the Jets kind of, it's easy to say the Jets got away from that game in the second half, but I would argue that the reason the Jets got away from that in the second half was partly because of the way the game changed, but also because they missed Dustin Bufflin for uh, nearly all of that second half, and they missed Josh Morrissey for the last 20 games. So, I mean, you know as well as anyone, if, if you can't get the the pucks into the sticks of the forwards' hands that are scoring and providing all of that high-octane offense, uh, it certainly has an impact. And 
I mean, of course, the Jets battled through as best they could, but uh, I would say that the, their stylistic changes had a little bit more to do with personnel uh, than it did the skill level because I think by the time that both Bufflin and Morrissey were back, they were playing more of a Jets brand of hockey, at least for the first five games of that series uh, against the St. Louis Blues. And some would argue that was probably the best they had played since the first half last year. Uh, they just kind of ran out of time and ran into a, a team that was the eventual champion. So I, I do I'm think I'm one of that, those people, Ken. Yeah, I know you are. You. I know. Yeah. And I mean, then that's, so the other part of that too, is that I do think that a lot of the stylistic changes that were implemented through the best practices procedure that the Jets always go through uh, is related to finding a style that is sustainable. And, and that's not to suggest that uh, giving up more grade A chances than you have or uh, allow, you know, relying on Connor Hellebuck to stop 30, uh, 35 a night, 35 to 40 shots a night. That's not nece- that's not sustainable either necessarily, uh, regardless of how great Hellebuck has been playing. But I think there is a happy medium in there somewhere between having that defensive commitment and having your third guy high and all of those other things uh, relating to, uh, you know, F3 and all that other, uh, you know, <laughs> hockey jargon. But there, the Jets from a defense first game can create enough offense to win games, even though there will be some nights when they get hellebucked, as I've liked to, uh, you know, I'm not going to put a trademark on that, but uh, they definitely... <laughs> it's a verb uh, now. Rather than just out goalied, I think we can call that uh, the Jets got hellebucked by Robin Leonard the other night, so... I mean, there's still definitely parts of the game that they they can and need to clean up if they want to, you know, have that sustained success. And I mean, we've talked about it kind of off off microphone before. I mean, based on the points the Jets have put in the bank so far, if they play 500, I mean, they they can't afford to think this way. But uh, folks that are monitoring, I mean, if you're starting to do the math in in your head, I mean, both of us. Uh, thought it would t- be take somewhere in the 90s for a team to make like the Jets to make the playoffs. I mean, if they play 500 hockey for the remainder of the season, that should get them in the 94, 96 range that will be required. But I mean, there's a lot of uh, a lot of things that have to happen for the Jets, uh, whether you know whether or not they can reach that level. But uh, I think that their offense has been able to generate more lately. I mean, is that is that because they're playing better overall game? I mean. Only time will tell, but I think that some of the elite shooters on the Jets are starting to find their, I would say, not even regular level, but the level that we're used to seeing. And I mean, I'm looking directly at Patrick Laine, uh in, in in regards to this discussion. I mean, the other night, those are two vintage Patrick Laine goals. And I mean, we've talked a lot about his playmaking ability, which is definitely still there, but the Jets are a more dangerous team when Patrick Laine is finding the balance between being a crafty playmaker but still unloading that, you know, upper echelon generational talent shooter uh, that he's been, uh, you know, looking more and more like uh, during these last, uh, you know, six or eight games, if you will. Yeah, he's he's becoming this multi-tool player, right? And, and Patrick Laine... Last year, I, I would say he would try to go for physicality and hits, but he'd sort of hit with this odd spinning motion and kind of go hip or butt first and then kind of not be able to follow up the puck afterwards. He didn't protect the puck quite as well. I would argue his playmaking was already there last season. I think he's been a terrific passer for a while, but he's hit another level with that and getting a lot of finishing as well this season. But now he's got the playmaking. He's got a physicality and a puck protection to him. 
and then the vintage shot to use your word i mean that um that is patrick line and as he adds these different abilities to his his skill set and chooses and, and develops the ability to choose when he uses what depending on how the game's playing out in front of him that's an exceedingly dangerous player and it uh, the age that he's at and the development and the years that he has to continue to take steps forward i mean think of nick ehlers just i think 23 years old at this moment um, and this has been a year over year step forward so line is going to continue to grow and I think the one thing that has always held me back from calling him among the very best goal scorers in the NHL, or he is among them, but to just make it Ovechkin and everybody else, it's that other players, Ovechkin, for example, can score in so many different ways. The greasy ones, the dirty ones, the outpowered somebody, <clears throat> excuse me, and then the shot as well. And Line is slowly working in some of those other aspects uh, of scoring into his gameplay. Um, he's not quite at that level yet in my mind, but I think that there is a belief that he can get there. And as Ovi begins to fade, I, I still see Line a as the heir apparent to that title. Um, I don't know. What about you? Is, is David Pasternak, he scores his goals in different ways, Austin Matthews, etc. And there are many other players. For me, I still see no one else as capable of launching that rocket that Line a does. And I project some growth into his game. So I see him as the guy, the man on deck for that title in the NHL depending on how long Ovi can keep it up to that level. Um, who, who in your mind could realistically challenge him for that spot? Oh, for sure. I mean, the guys you mentioned are all great examples. I mean, Nathan McKinnon, uh, even though he has that playmaking ability as well, but I think he can be a, you know, he's going to be a high-end goal scorer for a long time as well. But, I mean, Line has all the tools here. and He's done an incredible job of putting them all together and, I mean, I would, you know, he's got 104 shots, but I mean, he's behind Nikolai Ehlers in shots on goal so far, which, I mean, that's a, that's more of a credit to the shooting mentality that Ehlers has adopted. But I, I think that Line needs to look for a shot more. He has been looking for a shot more during this last stretch of hockey. And I think it's only a matter of time before those numbers continue to pile up. But if he continues to look for a shot, I mean, Mark Shifley's done a fantastic job this year, still above a point of game player leading the team with 17 goals. But I think the important thing for the Jets, uh, back to our original part of the discussion, is that they have more offensive weapons. And, I mean, it used to be, well, if Line wasn't scoring, then maybe the Jets aren't aren't winning. I mean, before, I mean, Line is, you know, at 13 goals. I mean, Ehlers is at 15, Blake Wheeler is at 10. I mean, they're having that balance. I mean, even though, yes, Line is playing on the first line, but that's that's – 44 goals between Line A, Shifley, and Wheeler. Jets can't afford to just be a one-line hockey team, but they're getting great high-end production. Now that second line, the goals are coming for uh, Wheeler, Ehlers, and Roslevic. And now from there, I mean, they got to get some help on the from the back end in terms of offensive production and, and some chipping in from, from the third and fourth lines, which, I mean, we saw the other day, Logan Shaw uh, converts a nice pass from Jansen Harkins, who was very solid in his debut. So... Uh, it's a long-winded way of saying. Game in two leagues. Well, sure. Yes. I mean, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna remind you of the. I know you're kidding, but uh, let, let's see him do it over a little longer stretch of time. But I really <laughs> liked, uh, I liked a lot of what I saw from Jansen Harkins, and uh, he's another one of those examples of, uh, you know, the long, the long road is sometimes still, uh, still a, still an opportunity where I mean, the long road doesn't mean that you can't get there. So. Uh, he uh, has worked incredibly hard, and now he's getting his opportunity. And I mean, he's determined to, you know, f- try to force his way to stay into the lineup, which, which would be interesting. But in terms of line, a, I think that 
he certainly hasn't lost his scoring ability. I like I like all of the things that I've seen in his game this year. Uh, his effort level is incredibly high, skating well, still getting a lot of shots, but I, I still think he needs to be a little bit more greedy. Uh, but I think that, that too, that's more of a reflection of him getting used to new line mates and, and getting used to a new role where now, especially with Adam, with uh, Andrew Kopp out, uh, playing against the other team's best, uh, I mean, there will be more scoring opportunities, you know, generally speaking, when you're playing against offensive guys, if you take care of your own end, then there's a lot of offense to be had uh, on occasion at the other end as well. Yeah, Winnipeg still, I mean, it's it's fun to celebrate a 6 nothing win um, and, and all of those those goals uh, that Winnipeg scored. And there's there's lots to love about that. But the reality is that the Winnipeg Jets uh, are without Andrew Kopp and they're without Matthew Perot for a little while longer yet. The latest from uh, Paul Maurice was that they sort of had their fingers crossed Perot might be ready to play against Montreal just because it is Montreal, but that wasn't necessarily realistic. Maybe against St. Louis coming up, but he's sort of on his way back. And then um, I believe the latest via you via Paul Maurice is, is week to week, at least four weeks for Andrew Kopp. So the Jets are in a situation where some of the, their best play driving players you know not the elite finishers like the Patrick Liney but the guys who really control what part of the ice the game gets played in are out right now and I look back to Winnipeg's games against Montreal particularly in the second half of last season as where some of the Jets uh, weaknesses began to get exposed against the speed of say a Montreal Canadiens team uh, who of course is Winnipeg's last opponent before the holiday break Um, and I know I, I, I think of this as a, as a major test, just up there with the Carolina Hurricanes as well in terms of a pace of play and a skill of play. And incidentally enough, some of that's being led by former Winnipeg Jets. Ben Sherrod is having a good season out there, and Yuval Armia is is putting together quite an offensive season there. And of course, he used to play with Kopp and Lowry on that third line that drove play every once in a while when Brandon Tanev wasn't doing it. And I'm just wondering what you make of the Montreal Canadiens as a challenge for these guys. And jeez, uh, it's... It's interesting to see former Jets have that kind of success uh, lost to, to Montreal as they have been over the years too. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, the uh, the Montreal Canadiens are a team that made life incredibly difficult uh, for the Winnipeg Jets last year on two occasions. I was uh, discussing it with a few colleagues this morning. Uh, to be blunt, the Canadiens made the Jets look slow last year, which is sort of what the Carolina Hurricanes did in the second and third periods, at least parts of those two periods uh, last week. So... Jets are going to need to be on top of their collective skating game in order to uh, match that sort of speed and dogged intensity that the Canadians can bring. Uh, it's been a strange season for the Habs. I mean, uh, Claude Julien was uh, reported uh, to be on thin ice uh, during that long losing skid that they had, but uh, they're sort of back playing the, the way we expected them to be playing, and they're right in the thick of things in the Atlantic Division. And yeah, I mean, Armia's having just an out, outstanding season. Uh, speaking with a couple of our colleagues uh, in Montreal when they were working on their, their feature story on him, and man, it's just an impressive display. I mean, only half joking, but when I asked Paul Maurice today about it, uh, I mean, <laughs> Armia has the best toe drag in the NHL, uh, but you only saw it against <laughs> Dallas. I mean, I know he was only half kidding, but uh, I mean, these guys, the potential was always there for Armia. Now he's done an incredible job of of piecing it together and finding that consistent uh, element that is always required for those uh, young players. And uh, I said it to the the Montreal guys at the time too. I mean, 
when Joel was playing a confident game, he was a very effective player, and he was an impact player at times, which which sounds a little strange for a for, for a third line guy who was getting some second power play minutes. But he always had a great shot, really quick release. Uh, every now and then, he'd uh, he'd wow you with the uh, with a uh, with a nice skill play. But for the most part, he was just uh, you know, it's funny. I mean, Rick Dudley, when I spoke with him this weekend uh, about Blake Wheeler, he he said that when Blake was in Boston, a lot of nights he was just trying to survive and. And that quote sort of, for me, I think could apply to Joel Armia during of the bulk of his time in Winnipeg where he was just trying to find his footing. And, and when you're when you're not playing free and when you're not trusting uh, your abilities and all those things, then, then it can lead to some stretches of mediocrity, if you will. And uh, Armia was the guy... In Winnipeg, he was the kind of guy that would impress you but kind of would almost leave you... left you wanting a little bit more because you saw the glimpses... And you wanted to see him all the time, and and that's what that's the kind of player that now he's blossoming into uh, as a member of the Montreal Canadiens. And as far as Ben Sherratt goes, I mean, uh, one of the hardest working guys around. I mean, uh, the prototypical self-made player. I mean, he got caught in a numbers game in his first year uh, pro. He ended up in the uh, ECHL for a while before he went back to St. John's, and and really really did a nice job of growing as a player under Keith McCambridge. Uh, got his chance with the Jets, and lo and behold, he's found himself. Uh, first playing with Dustin Bufflin, and now he's on a you know he's on a pairing with Shea Weber. I mean, still one of the one of the better defensemen in the National Hockey League. So uh, Ben Schrott was excited to be back around Winnipeg. He was happy to to speak to the folks in the media. He had a huge scrum around him today at the backdrop, uh, and uh, I think he was he's really excited about how things have gone. And I mean, he was very upfront when in speaking with us uh, at the end of the year. He said he wanted to play in a Canadian market and I mean he's talked about how important it is and how special it is to to wear that original six jersey and I mean good on him I mean he's he's worked incredibly hard from being a a depth piece to a you know a core contributor on a on a team that's uh, right in the mix for a playoff spot as well in the east yeah a, a nice guy to deal with in the room for sure last year as well and I remember asking Ben about uh, the the origin of his number um, and he said he actually grew up as a huge fan of, of Paul Coffey and was able to sort of through the Charlie Huddy connection in Winnipeg or actually be able to, to meet and communicate with Paul Coffey. And his eyes just got so wide and uh, he was a case of an NHL player looking up to one of his idols. And I, I always found that as one of my standout Sherratt moments. I got to throw a hashtag one man Armia reference out there too uh, from those great penalty kills and those those moments because I agree with you, man, did that guy leave you wanting more sometimes while doing amazing things and with that opportunity I should say uh, he set a new career record for himself with 13 goals last season the next goal that Armia scorers this year will be his 13th as well he's on pace for more than 25 which is another impressive look and then I gotta ask you um, I've been doing a little bit of digging on a player whose name you mentioned and I found out that David Krejci way back in Boston days uh, had trouble with the Wheeler sound, and so for a little while, Blake went by the nickname Veals uh, in Boston <laughs> as a Bruin. And, and you've just written a, a phenomenal piece where you go around the horn and you've talked to um, Dudley and Ladd and and many, many more. You know, when a player is a veteran, it's tough to get these behind-the-scenes stories sometimes, yeah. but Blake Wheeler just set a franchise record for most points by a Thrashers slash Jet uh, player and you've got the goods on it. So I just wanted to talk to you a, a little bit about that and maybe just, just speak to it if I can just put you on the spot to tell us about it and what you learned. Yeah, you know, it, it's one of those stories that's, you know, always a lot of fun to, to put together. I mean, 
Uh, Blake is someone that I've covered since he arrived in town, and I mean, he's it's been interesting to watch his growth. I mean, uh, he's become a dominant player. I mean, you like to hear from people that know him. I, I mean, I, I've been wanting to talk to Rick Dudley for a long time about Blake Wheeler. You know, I've t- spoken to Claude Julien, who had him first in Boston, and I mean, Dudley was the guy that pulled the trigger. I mean, on a deal that uh, it was funny. I, I love the fact that he Rick went back into the archives and, and said right off the hop that there was some debate within the organization as to as to whether they should make the deal. And he said he made an executive decision uh, after watching Blake an awful lot. And, and I mean, man, that's, it, it's the it's the biggest trade in franchise history. I mean, with all due respect to Paul Stastny, uh, who came in and did a, you know, an, an exceptional job as a, you know, it turned out to be a rental player. Yes, the Jets were close to signing him before he decided to go to Vegas, but uh, I mean, there's no denying that the organization changed. I mean, if we're dealing with Atlanta, you have to acknowledge that that in a, as a result of a salary cap, a pair of salary cap moves, the Thrashers were able to get Dustin Bufflin and Andrew Ladd, who were who two incredibly important players for the organization. But I mean, Blake has you know stuck around. Well, so far he's stuck around longer than Bufflin because he's not here. Uh, and he's and he, and he outlasted Ladd as captain, but uh, I mean Blake, you know, you did a great job of pulling the curtain back with Blake a couple of weeks ago. I mean Blake was was you know speaking so much of you know pass, pass deflecting praise, uh, which was what we expected him to do on Saturday, and looked a little bit more at it today. But I mean that's a moment that Blake's going to look at down the road and and really appreciate. I mean he's already making jokes about how this young talent will pass him you know, sooner than later and everything else. But uh, Andrew Ladd said it, you know, flat out. He said, I mean, this is going to mean a lot to Blake, knowing knowing the amount of effort he put in to become the player uh, that he's grown into. I mean, that's going to be a mark that uh, and a milestone that, that he won't forget. And, I mean, with, you know, four more years after this, uh, this year, I mean, he's going to pile up a pretty impressive uh, total no matter when, uh, you know, when he stops playing for the Jets. But... Uh, yeah, it's, it was cool to get those insights. I mean, Rick Dudley talked about the the type of player that that he saw just in glimpses with Boston, and uh, I mean, he pointed it out that the stars really aligned for Blake uh, when he when he came over in the deal. I mean, he had an assist in his first game. Uh, he really you know meshed well with Brian Little and Andrew Ladd, and and since that time during the transitional years of the Jets, he he became a really good you know one two punch with with Mark Shifley, and now those two guys are carrying their own lines. So. Uh, it, it's been an impressive career to monitor, and uh, I think the thing that I always, always sticks out for me is that uh, uh, Blake is is winning the battle with Father Time, and I still expect him to be a, a key contributor for years to come, uh, just because of his smarts and his tenacity and all of the things that he brings to the arena with him. And uh, I mean, he's become uh, you know an excellent leader, but I mean, it's not just the off ice; it's he's still an on ice contributor, and it's funny. I mean, uh, you know. A month ago, we were talking about Blake Wheeler being a half point a game player, and lo and behold, now he's got thirty and thirty six, and he's been a more than a point a game player since moving to center, which, which is an which is an incredible accomplishment Amazing. when when you consider yeah. the additional burden is not the right word, but responsibility that's been put on him since uh, moving to center on that second line with with I, I know they don't like to call themselves young wingers, but they're still young wingers in terms of experience and, and, you know, learning the defensive side of the game. So, uh, you know, Blake's, you know, doing incredible things. And the other part of it too, is that 
I mean, sure, Blake would have loved to have done it in Winnipeg in front of a, a hometown crowd, but uh, he did it in front of his own hometown crowd with, you know, mom and dad in the seats and uh, probably some family, other family and friends and maybe even the odd coach or two uh, in the building as well. So, uh, you know, incredible achievement. And like I said, I mean, that, that, that 616 number, uh, I would expect it will be uh, a lot higher uh, by the time that that he's ready to, uh, you know, hang up the skates and, uh, you know, think a little bit more about what those moments are. But, uh, you know, stick tap uh, to Blake Wheeler for, uh, like I said, I mean, an, an, just an outstanding accomplishment. And it was great to touch base with some of those players. I mean, Mike Russo was kind enough to get a quote from Alex Stalock, who, who was back playing against Wheeler uh, for surely in the high, you know, the state high school team. Uh, you know, days and maybe even before that in minor hockey. But, uh, yeah, it's just an impressive, impressive all-around showing by a guy who's uh, done a lot and in becoming, a, you know, not only, a, you know, the franchise points leader, but really the face of this franchise and, and a guy who cares a lot about uh, sticking around, which is why he signed that five-year deal. Absolutely, yeah. And for those counting, uh, it's Bl- Blake Wheeler is sitting at 616, I believe, via your article. Um, 616 in terms of points as uh, Winnipeg Jets slash Atlanta Thrasher. Mark Shifley sitting at 408 right now. So that's, a, I think, a comfortable cushion for the next few years for the captain. Though I would have to suggest that if somebody's going to catch him or uh, in, a, in a Winnipeg Jets uniform, Shifley's probably a good bet to do so or to be that guy if, uh, if such a thing happens. But also what you're talking about in terms of Wheeler's development, especially at center this season, it's sort of a new leaf for the guy because I know he had that 16 games or so center audition back when Shifley was hurt a couple of seasons ago. This time he's really had to carry a little bit more weight and the amount of work that he's doing in the defensive zone has impressed me so much. I did not expect Wheeler to be able to play that um, down low game one-on-one, basically himself in the 2D and without the Bufflins and Trubas of the world to really iron things out back there that's a lot of work for Winnipeg centers this season I wasn't sure what the adjustment was going to look like and I I think Wheeler has been a tremendous defensive center even before the puck goes up the other way Um, I think it's a good combination of chemistry with him Roslovic and Ehlers too because both of those guys are so good at moving the puck the right way uh, with a tremendous amount of speed and all of a sudden Blake Wheeler's speed is back in the game as well so right now it's tough to 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 criticize aspects of, of Wheeler's game it's also a it makes me wonder you know someday father time will catch up to Blake Wheeler and he acknowledged it it's in our pieces like uh, in in that one-on-one that I had he mentions you know what he knows it's coming and he it was so candid about that I don't think he's somebody who's going to pout about it when it happens you know as he fades to second lines, third lines, wherever it's going to be as he gets older, I don't think that that he's going to fade in terms of wanting to drive and want to com- wanting to compete. And and I think that you'll still see an effective third liner or checker or whatever the tail end of his career looks like for him. And I, I have a little bit more confidence in saying that after seeing him play so strongly defensively in the last uh, last little portion of play. Um. Ken, it's almost time to wish everybody uh, a happy holiday. And with that in mind, I I just wanted to do a quick plug of a Neil Pionk family story uh, in in Minnesota. 
they grew up as five brothers. There were four of them a little bit closer in age, Neil Pionk being the older, the oldest among them. And it, it was kind of really neat to, to talk to his younger brothers, Nate and Joey, this, uh, this last little while and hear them talk about Neil as somebody who they just wanted to be like. He was the older brother who everybody's name who everybody at school they knew his name every one of their hockey coaches growing up knew his name and he was sort of just the target that they wanted to to emulate both on and off the ice and they got into some just <laughs> just Fierce. silly chatter and uh, and chirps and things like that in in the latest piece we have up at uh, at the athletic talking about the brotherhood and, and the holiday cup which won't get played in the next couple of days, this outdoor Christmas tradition. They played at Christmases, New Year's, Thanksgiving, whenever they were having the opportunity growing up. Neil's NHL career has postponed some of this Holiday Cup action until at least the All-Star break. But there's a really neat little or behind-the-scenes story of those guys growing up, um, complete with Annie Pionk, the Golden Retriever referee, <laughs> that I just want folks to be aware of uh, <laughs> as well. With holiday season coming up, are you going to find yourself on any outdoor ice anytime soon? I know you like to get the skates and you play competitively. I've heard that you're a good chirper in your own right, but uh, what do you got in terms of outdoor uh, outdoor love uh, on the ice coming up for you? Well, certainly. I mean, it's the time of year where, uh, you know, beautiful time of the season. and We've been blessed here with the last couple of days at the weather. And uh, I mean, it was used to be a holiday staple for me getting on the ice at the, at the outdoor pad uh, at Across, at West Park School, which is across from my home in uh, Eltona. We'll be getting down to see Ken Sr. and the crew uh, tomorrow, but I'm not sure. Uh, I might throw the skates in, but last few years it's just been a little uh, a little too hectic to get out there on the ice, but uh, certainly a holiday tradition that we always enjoyed. Uh, and, I mean, I remember growing up as a you know minor hockey player where that was always the fun time, getting to play against the older kids and sort of testing your wares against the, the guys who were playing high school or or junior, or maybe with the senior team at home. So uh, certainly hoping to get out on the ice. I, I can admit I play I play indoors a lot now, uh, maybe getting softer in my old age, but uh, certainly my plan is to get out on the outdoor rink at some point uh, here this winter and have a twirl. And uh, it's a great way to spend uh, any day, especially uh, over the holidays, that's for sure. Well, with can we possibly getting on some outdoor ice, but certainly celebrating it, um, and, and the family time coming up with Winnipeg coming off of a 6 nothing win and about to finish off its pre-holiday season against the Montreal Canadiens on Monday the 23rd in Winnipeg against their former teammates Joel Armia and Ben Sherratt. Uh This is Murat Atesh of the Boarding Pass uh, along with Ken, of course. Please, ladies, gentlemen, kids, whoever you are, please rate and subscribe the Boarding Pass on Apple. Uh, just got to click the show URL, theathletic.com slash theboardingpass, and that'll get you 40% off your subscription. If you don't yet subscribe to theathletic.com, plus you get to hear an extended version of the boarding pass every week, except for this holiday bonus edition at theathletic.com. Um, it's been a pleasure having this conversation with you, Ken, as always. It's a pleasure writing for everybody at The Athletic. As always, happy holidays. All the best to you in the new year. For Ken Weeb, I'm Murat Atesh, and this has been The Boarding Pass. <laughs>